Hi, my name is Aisha Small. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Youth and Education podcast, where I interview interesting guests to explore developments in education, research and policy that affect young people, primarily in the UK. This podcast is brought to you by the Youth Think and Action Tank, LKM Co. Hi, welcome to episode 17 of the LKM Co Youth and Education podcast. This is a research roundup episode and it features Anna, who's our deputy director, and Sam, who's our director of research, discussing three reports. So the first report is about young people and their career aspirations. Second one is about the way that students are described in policy documents. This one was fascinating. Um, talking about whether students were described as consumers, vulnerable children, future workers, hard workers or learners. And the final one was talking about interventions used to prevent school exclusions. Um, When we talk about exclusions here, we're talking about temporary exclusions. So really interesting episode. Hope you enjoy it and wishing you a wonderful week. Bye. LKM co-believe society should ensure all children and young people receive the support they need to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. Find us at lkmco.org. Can we listen to it now? Good morning, you find me here with Sam, our Director of Research at LKM Co and I'm Anna. Um, We are going to be talking about three uh, bits of research today, two of which are relatively linked actually, and one um, which I think will draw together some of the other things we've been researching at LKMCO recently. So um, Sam, do you want to start us off giving an overview of the three pieces and then we'll start delving into Yeah, that sounds like a good place to start. Um, so these are all pretty recent, two of them came out last week, um, and one was an academic piece that came out just before Christmas. Um, so the first one is called Drawing the Future. It's a report from Education and Employers and it jumped out at me because it's essentially a piece looking at young people's aspirations, primary school kids' aspirations, um, through the medium of pictures and looking at how they match labour market demand uh, and how they're dictated or influenced by factors such as gender. Um, so that was, for me, a really important report that I wanted to go through. Um, second piece I wanted to chat about was um, a piece which examined the language with which um, higher education students are discussed in policy circles, which we both, I think, thought was a little bit different mm-hmm. and quite yeah. essentially really interesting. Um, and the third piece I wanted to chat to you about um, was a systematic review of randomised controlled trials into school-based interventions for reducing exclusions. Um, So kind of the opposite end of the spectrum, I guess. What I like about these pieces of research, Sam, is that you are revealing your inner geek because methodologically they're all quite different and I feel like you might have done that on purpose. I may have done that. (laughs) It's one of those things where at the end I thought, oh, there's there's a nice balance there. Let's try and make this look deliberate. (laughs) Well, I enjoyed it. So let's have a look at this um, education employers piece, although it's in collaboration with a lot of kind of heavy hitters in this space, so Mm. TESS, NAHT, UCL, Institute of London and OECD. And it's a survey of 20,000 primary school children. Mm. Um, 13,000 of those were in the UK um, and then the others internationally. And they're you know, releasing it this week and presenting it to Davos, which is um, really interesting because I think that kind of weight of numbers behind what they're saying 
must be really important when you're trying mm. to push things and say no this is a this is a serious <laughs> look it's a numbers game mm. look at these people we've we've um worked with yeah so um what were some of the findings and then let's chat through what our take on some of those are mm. so this report i think actually i was it's one of those ones where i my initial reaction uh was to focus in i think quite critically on one of their, it was more about how they spun their findings for me. And I guess we could talk about that in a bit, but I think actually today on the way in to work, I was having a think about some of the report's other findings. And I actually think probably the, the most important one and the one that's still most pressing and urgent in lots of other research that we see is a gender disparity in what primary school kids aspire to do when they're older. There still seem to be, and the report flags up, quite marked disparities in the extent to which boys and girls at primary school aspire to kind of technical trades um, and um, kind of care, mm. personal service yeah. um, occupations, for instance. Yeah. There's a really big gender divide. Um, it's smaller in some areas than others, but in quite a few occupational areas there's a big gender divide. Yeah, and even in those kind of um, uh, better paid professional occupations, for, for girls, for example, it was doctor, vet teacher so it was still kind of in the in the caring realm mm. um whereas for the boys it tended to be more things like engineer right mm. um yeah and and actually so this is obviously i zoomed in on the gender stuff um and i was thinking about some of the work we've done in the past with the young women's trust where they talk about the kind of the the, the problem being that for young women particularly from disadvantaged uh, disadvantaged backgrounds they will go into kind of vocational industries that are things like health and beauty which actually don't always have the potential to progress and to be as well paid as their male counterparts who may have gone into vocational education like mm. building construction and, um, and and you know some of those different trades mm. and so their they're kind of latest stats on it that a full-time man will be on average earning three thirty nine thousand and three pounds a year for full-time work um, versus twenty nine thousand eight hundred and ninety one for women um, for full-time work as well. So, yeah, there's there's obviously something in this that they've picked mm. out, isn't there, about this gender issue, which I think Definitely. is really present. And I think in there there's a really important point to make, which is that um, <clears throat> there's almost a kind of potentially a double disadvantage in this report to the extent that it flags up a really significant gender divide, only flags up potentially half of the problem because we know mm. there are, as, on top of what people... And on top of how young people's aspirations are sometimes circumscribed or channeled by norms which aren't very desirable, um, they're then further, uh, their, their ability to gain access to a wide range of jobs is further hampered by things that we know exist, like exclusionary interview practices mm-hmm. um, or what the workplaces themselves even look like and whether people feel they're able to stay in certain types of occupation and ability to do unpaid internships (laughs) we've Mm. been talking about this last week haven't we so Mm. even once you're you decide that maybe so some of those kind of slightly uh harder to break industries like media uh, a lot Mm. of that relies on unpaid labor um and that's hard to break into if you don't have the means to fall back to support yourself during those those kind of times to get experience Mm. um now, you mentioned that you, there were some slightly more contentious points in the report. What was it for you that you felt was a little bit um, debatable? I, the first was a point about 
the apparent relative lack of change in young people's aspirations between um, they, between primary school age, end of primary school and end of secondary school, broadly speaking. They compared their findings with an earlier study they'd done which looked at secondary school pupils. And the way that they had cut the data in terms of different occupations, they observed a broad kind of match between essentially primary school kids and secondary school kids to them both over aspire for mm. things like culture, media and sport occupations. It's this kind of eternal finding which never really surprises us much but it always irritates me slightly because I think, uh, broadly speaking, that finding that uh, loads of 11 year olds aspire to be footballers and actors and YouTubers, oh and we find the same thing when they're 16. The truth is, yes, lots of young people do aspire to those sorts of careers. It's not particularly difficult to imagine why, um, given that the, their life outside of school is dominated by and fascinated by just those sorts of things. I think for some, in many cases, quite positively. Um, when I was doing my PhD research a few years ago, I dug in, I kind of dug deeper into that trend. And actually, there are subtle shifts that take place in young people's aspirations between the age of about 11 and the age of about 15. And you do see, essentially, an exercise that young people go through of making their aspirations more realistic. And I'm not saying that's something that is necessarily always positive or uncontroversial. It's, it's almost a slightly kind of saddening thing, you know. Squashing of dreams. Yeah, the, the crushing of dreams <laughs> is that inevitable, the sort of healthy part of growing up, but it's sad when you see it happening. Um, but I mean, there will be a point where I have to explain to Ella that the princess part of her dreams to be a princess scientist astronaut might be a bit trickier. Yeah, that might drop away. <laughs> and particularly that, 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 that trio is particularly difficult <laughs> to hang on to. Yeah, very niche. Um, but you do see, for instance, young people moving away from aspirations to be uh, footballers and actors towards actually uh, higher paid but more widely available uh, jobs like architects, social workers, teachers. Um, not always higher paid. I'm not saying that all teachers are, are better paid than all actors. Um, so actually, I think while the report doesn't exactly say something that's not true, I think it's sort of an unhelpful. I think when something is said and said and said and said and said by N reports, it, you get to a point where the detail gets lost a bit and actually underneath that trend of kind of stasis, young people's aspirations do shift and I think it's sometimes quite positive mm -hmm. ways that show that they are really reflecting on what's going on in the world around them. So that, that was one thing, and the second thing in the report, um, otherwise I'll forget Anna. <laughs> no, it's fine, do it, <laughs> If I do don't it. go straight on to my next For thing. those who are listening, um, I just did a quick, ah, okay, I won't go on to my, my counterpoint, so Sam, take it away before just, you forget. I, I, at the moment, I, I'm forgetting <laughs> lots of things. I was, I was so keen to make this point. Um, the, the second point is a point about mismatch between aspirations and labour demand, and the report dedicates a lot of time, quite strong language and... It seemed to me almost genuine terror that there is such a big disparity between the aspirations young people have for the future and the availability of those sorts of jobs. So uh, again, lots of young people aspiring at primary and at secondary to be uh, actors and footballers. We know how few young people will eventually make it. Um, and I think I have this kind of worry about that kind of skills gap narrative or looking at that gap as something inherently problematic and worrying and that we must close that gap and that's the you know we need to make aspirations and the schools that 
support them more responsive to the labour market and that's a sign of success I kind of I'm worried about that I feel like things will actually work themselves out in the end providing young people are given good advice at school ah, right so you just hit upon my kind of follow-up okay. questions yeah so um, in the report they found that you know one percent of young people had decided on the job they wanted to do because someone outside had spoken to them about that career choice, you know, kind of highlighted it as a job they could do. And we know, don't we, particularly for young people from disadvantaged backgrounds, they turn to their family and peers to get their careers advice right. um, or their, their role models for where they'll progress to. And, and that is problematic if you don't have a range of sectors to, to draw upon and a range of influences mm. um, because it may well mean that you just kind of continue into poorly paid jobs and you don't necessarily um, recognise the need for qualifications to be able to get into those jobs. So mm. in terms of the labour market changing and kind of needing more highly skilled workers, I'm not necessarily saying that we have this input of child that has this, this and this done to them and then the outcome is that they fill this gap in the labour market. Mm. But... I think there is a there is a question about how we increase quality guidance in schools so that it becomes more of a trusted resource for young people. And mm. um, there's some work that the Edge Foundation have been doing recently about you know what a alternative 14 to 19 curriculum could look like. And mm. one of their um, stats was that uh, two thirds of young people wanted more input from employers when they were at school. Now we don't. This is sound terribly patronising. Young people don't always know what's best for them. <laughs> God, I sound like my mother. Um, but um, in terms of having more and regular input from employers and doing that in a way that the research shows is useful, as opposed to just tokenistic mm. gestures, I think could be one way that you help prepare people for labour labour market without trying to push them into a certain thing that just mm. makes the economy thrives. Right. Yeah, and one. Um, uh, an interesting and constructive, very valid point the report makes is that it's also very specific in terms of a practical recommendation is um, when it comes to engaging with employers for schools to bring in people who are unusual in their mm. in their workplaces, for instance. So uh, women who are engineers, for instance, uh, or um, people like uh, black people working in law firms, for instance, uh, it's... I was talking at a BAMI, I was at a BAMI event last week where we were talking about those kind of examples of people who are still relatively few and far between for all the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, getting these people to come into schools and say, well, you know, it's, it's possible. But also, from my perspective, this is, how it, this is how it worked out. These are some of the difficulties I had. That kind of stuff is really useful. Mm-hmm. Um, so then we kind of, are, you, are we all good to move on to our next one? Because I think this brings out the super English teacher geek in me. Yeah, let's go for it. Um, so this is the construction of higher education students in English policy documents. And it's from the British Journal of so- Sociology and Education by Rachel Brooks. Um, Sam, talk us through it, because I found this one fascinating. Cool. No, I'm glad you did. Yeah. Um, I've seen this sort of analysis done before, but it's not hugely widespread. And this one, I think, was particularly good at, um, at kind of drawing out what the practical implications were of this sort of analysis. So it's a qualitative study of the way in which students are constructed in higher education policy discourse, and it focused specifically on different groups of policy actors. Um, Government departments, on the one hand, senior politicians responsible for higher education, business and employer representatives, and finally, students and employees unions. Um, I think they took four recent documents from each of those kind of group of actors, 
and essentially looks at the kind of language that was used when they're talking about students in higher education. Um, and the study found five main characterizations of students. Um, some of them are quite self-explanatory and others are quite interesting when you pick down into them. Um, the first was a kind of consumer narrative, which isn't that surprising because lots of people describe uh, that trend in higher education at the moment towards kind of students as consumers. Um, but also tied into that as kind of vulnerable children. So there was a sense in that narrative of students are consumers, but the market doesn't always work well. And some students are screwed over by the fact, for instance, uh, lots of government policy documents talking about how the, the poor quality of some higher education lets those students down. Um, the second narrative or discourse was about future, work, future workers. So the kind of narrative that's quite clear in the previous piece we discussed, higher education and students as, as future workers. Um, one of the other narratives was around hard workers, so hard-working students, um, which I think specifically linked success in higher education to hard work. Um, and also included themes such as grade inflation and a worry that some students uh, get by in higher education yeah. without working hard. I was interesting. Yeah, I was wondering if that might have come through there. That right. Kind of work shy, yeah. deferring work. Um, you know, scrounger of a student who actually is going to come out with a lot of debt and perhaps a degree that they didn't really value or right. need. <laughs> right. And one of the things that's interesting, interesting in this report is that sometimes the same group of actors, so government government reports, for instance, and speeches simultaneously sometimes adopt both uh, one or multiple narratives. So they, in the same phrase, talk about students as empowered consumers, but consumers who sometimes are let down by poor quality information or poor quality teaching, uh, students who, when they work hard, are things to be kind of held up and, uh, and so championed, but those who don't market not. Market terms, then? Quite, quite markety yeah. terms. Um, there's, a, I guess, a... There are two less prevalent narratives. One was around political actors. A lot of this came through in discussions about the setting up of the new office for students and comes out a lot in uh, NUS, National Union of Students, uh, reports and speeches. Perhaps unsurprisingly, like kind of the campaigning voice of students, the need for students to be politically empowered and, and have a voice. And they're doing some quite interesting work. So Shakira Fleming, who's kind of heading it up over there, they're doing some interesting work into poverty and kind of particularly for young people, some of the barriers for them getting into HE. Mm. So I can, I can see that that would come through, actually. Yeah, particularly from that set of, mm. of, of actors, if not others. Um, perhaps the one that surprised me most, although in some ways it didn't surprise me and it was depressing to see that it didn't surprise me, is that a learner discourse was perhaps the least prevalent. I think it was the term learner was used once in all of the kind of 16 documents <laughs> they looked across um, to describe students in higher education. So make of that what you will, but that's a sort of summary of what the piece does. And why is it, or is it important that we kind of analyse the discourse around, like why is it important that we look at the words and the language that people are being framed within? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, to some extent you could say, well it's, it's the policies themselves that matter, why look at how they've been described or spoken about or how they're introduced. But I, one way in which I think this sort of analysis is really important and our attention should always be on the words that people use to describe things is that if we look back over the longer term, it's often the, the narratives that people construct around a policy that allow us to say, 
hang on a second, they were trying to do this back in the early 80s, or I remember a policy from the early 90s where they were trying to do or construct something similar. The policy was called something different, it was a different government at the time, um, and in it, the nuts and bolts of it was they were trying to achieve this thing in another way. But actually what really matters is the underpinning ideology, for instance, and that often comes through in, in the language that people use. So it helps us to spot where they're trying to reinvent a wheel that, that doesn't need reinventing, yeah. or they're trying to do something that didn't work last time and shouldn't be tried again. Um, and this allows us to spot when that is happening, I think. And it, I, I guess it also helps us think about well, where, where, are those, where are those gaps, where are things not being talked about, right? So the fact that students aren't being talked about as learners could be problematic mm. because actually having a market narrative yeah but very much drives that sense of what well, is their value for money and um, so it, one of the kind of edge pieces again they they found that the majority of graduates from the last decade would choose not to go to university in the current funding regime mm. and the thing is about having these different sets of um, kind of frames for how people operate is that sometimes you then only ask policy questions or research questions around those issues. Mm. So if you see that there are gaps, um, it would be really interesting to think about how the teaching excellence framework, whether that increases the prevalence of the word learners in documents mm. or whether it's just to increase market value, for example. Mm. Um, and actually the TEF, the teaching excellence framework, is a really good example to pick up on because this, uh, this piece of research, for instance, shows there's far more mention of the teaching excellence framework as a marker of holding <coughs> higher education institutions to the fire in terms of quality than there is about talking about the teaching excellence framework as something that will help students to learn. Yeah, so it's so, an instrument for accountability, not change or not you know, deep-rooted? Right, yeah, okay, right. arguably. One. So this, this kind of study throws that into relief and I think that's a hugely powerful thing to, mm. to, to, to be able to do. I want to do it on more stuff, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, yeah. I think LKMCO did it once. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, we may have done it more than once, but uh, a few years ago, I think, looking through Ofsted reports um, for the language that was used there. But it's, it's something you can often do quite quickly, um, but it, it really throws up some interesting findings sometimes. So, watch this space. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to throw let's, the gauntlet Let's do one soon. <laughs> <laughs> and then we come on to our third final um, piece of research to have a look at. School-based interventions for reducing disciplinary school exclusion, a systematic review, and it's a Campbell collaboration. Um, and something that we should probably flag up that we both were like, ah, is that when they're talking about school exclusions here, they're talking about temporary suspensions or temporary exclusions, not necessarily the permanent type. Um, mm. So, yeah, just going to put that out there because that changes maybe the nature in which these interventions are taking place. So mm. do you want to talk through what some of the findings were? Yeah, sure. Um, so this is, uh, this is quite a hefty piece. Um, it came out uh, this month, January. Um, so it's a systematic review of 37 randomised control trials of interventions to reduce rates of exclusion. Um, most of them, were almost all of them, are from the US, but I think there's some really interesting translatable findings to the UK. Um, I suppose this sort of study is a good example of what many people see as the gold standard in education research. So it represents, I think, probably at least about three years' work of a team of people to sift through thousands of studies and find specifically those that narrow in on exactly the kind of intervention they're interested in um, and that measure it in just the right kind of way. So I think the team were particularly interested in things that happen in schools, interventions that schools um, enact to prevent young people from being temporarily excluded. 
Um, so it might be things like mentoring, coaching, um, academic support, or training teachers in particular ways. Um, and they were only interested in looking at the effect um, that was found by, by studies called randomised control trials. So broadly speaking, they're studies that take um, a group of kids in a school for whom these interventions are being used and a matched group of kids, uh, like a control group, where, where the intervention isn't happening. And then you compare the outcomes of the two further down the line. Um, and I think it's probably fair to say the report, it, it finds relatively muted, its findings are relatively muted. It finds a kind of narrow set of things that schools do that seem to have an impact, but only within the first six months. So the outcomes um, are sustained for around six months after an exclusion, um, but then not, yeah. not longer than that. And I find this really interesting because if you think about where you're putting your interventions, um, as a school leader you have a finite budget and you have you know, different kids on different journeys in different mm. year groups, right? If I know that mentoring and coaching has about a six-month impact then actually it totally makes me it makes sense for me to input some investment into that intervention for a kid in year 10 who's at risk of exclusion because an extra six months to their learning mm. is critically important. Mm. Whereas, you know, if I'm thinking, well, it's a kid in year seven, are, are there any other better placed interventions for me to do? So enhancement of academic skills, mm. is, is that going to be the one that actually helps them a little bit more long term? Because... It, it would help them anyway. Mm. But it's, it's quite the enhancement of academic skills ones is an interesting one because I think sometimes when learners are finding it really difficult to focus and attend in class and engage with material, the temptation can be just to kind of pull them out and give them something alternative um, and say, oh, well, they can't quite access the curriculum in this way. We'll, we'll just do something different for them. Mm. But I think it's really, it's really heartening to think, well, actually, yeah, helping them to get in the classroom and stay in the classroom is about helping them to access the curriculum mm. not by softening our expectations but by giving them roots in which maybe they haven't had before mm. um, although it is interesting you know six months worth you, you you kind of think well what does that mean for for kind of long-term yeah. interventions for kids where does that leave us if we don't have answers mm. beyond that six-month point and arguably it suggests what it, it sheds light on just how significant the the set of factors are that young people who are likely to be excluded, so young people for whom these interventions are going to be targeted, just how formidable the, the challenge is really. Um, even when we target resources at them, a, a wide range of resources that these studies looked at, um, and even when there's a short-term impact, it seems like it's hard to sustain to sustain that impact. Yeah. As you say, it's, that's not an argument for not doing these things, but um, it begs important questions like, well, how will they do in the next phase of education or how will they do in the labour market? Mm -hmm. What do we need to do to get longer term impacts? And also things like where there are transition points, is that where it's particularly worthwhile mm. putting in some of these interventions before these kids get to a point where they're at risk of exclusion? So if you mm. know that there's kind of kids that kind of a pre-intervention pre <laughs> intervention before mm. they uh, really start to become a, a, a high risk, is it, for example, worth doing some of this in the transition between year six and year seven, where we know kids typically really find it difficult, particularly if they've got some of the kind of um, watch risk factors that are associated with exclusion? Mm. Um, 
Now, you put a note down here with two exclamation marks, which is very unlikely to use such inflammatory punctuation <laughs> twice. So you put, interesting to note, do you mind if I read this? You can absolutely read Excellent. that. Excellent. Interesting to note that independent evaluator teams reported lower effect sizes than research teams who were also involved in the design and or delivery of the intervention. Importance of keeping teams, uh, sorry, importance of keeping evaluation teams separate from design implementation teams. Da, da, da. Right. What does that mean? Uh, essentially, they, uh, the neat thing about their studies is that they were, there's often an independent group of people brought in afterwards to re-examine the evidence, and they found across the board that, uh, on average, when that was done, those independent teams found a bit less of an impact than the impacts that were found by people who were not only carrying out the evaluations, but had been involved in some way in designing the interventions as well. And often in those sorts of pieces, you'll see people saying, you know, we've uh, we're aware that we've been involved in setting up uh, in, in any way this, uh, this particular intervention and the study around it, but we've, we've noted that and we're doing everything we can to make sure we're not biased. It shows how easy it is as human beings to be, to be biased. You really want something to work sometimes, right? Yeah, you really if want something to work. It, yeah. yeah, so in some ways it's an indication of the goodness of human spirit, but unfortunately <laughs> when it comes to looking across 37 RCTs, it sometimes shows that that can feed into our ability to see what works. So I guess uh, it's a, a sobering reminder that if you're evaluating something, if you've been involved in running it, you're probably more likely to think that it works than someone that you get in who's never seen you with a programme before. Mm. Yeah, okay, so that's good to, good to take into account when we're thinking yeah. about how we evaluate. Especially because right. sometimes we work with organisations to help them design and help them evaluate. So right. it's, you know, keeping that impartiality yeah, in yeah. mind. Yeah, it's really important. Mm. Fantastic. Well, I think that is all for today. We'll mm. put these links in the show notes that accompany the podcast. And thank you very much, Sam. Thanks, Anna. Hey, people. I love making this podcast. If you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, there's a few things that you can do. One, subscribe. Press the subscribe button on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. Two, share. Share this episode with somebody who you know will find it interesting or is affected by the specific issues covered. Free. Review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also feel free to contact us via the links on the show notes. Thanks a lot. Bye.